Uh, we do have a lot to cover today, and I want to begin. So if you take your Bible, please uh, turn there or uh, navigate your device there to get to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. For many chapters now, we have been uh, kind of tracing the, the steps, retracing the uh, Apostle Paul's three missionary expeditions as recorded in the book of Acts. And today, we come to the last leg of the, um, of the, of the third and final journey. Uh, the last leg of the third and final journey. After this episode, from this point on, Paul will be a prisoner. Uh, he will appear before Jewish and Roman authorities before finally arriving in Rome as was destined from the start. And from the start, from the very moment of Paul's uh, conversion to Christ, which we read about, learned about way back in chapter 9, from, from that very moment we learned an obvious truth about Paul that we've just seen uh, repeated and continually de- demonstrated uh, from one episode to the next. And that's this, that Paul's story reveals a deep passion to exalt the name of Jesus even in the face of escalating opposition. Uh, and I believe he serves as a needed example for us in this way even as we will see again this morning from this morning's text. So I want to read all of, uh, or most, of chapter 21, verses 1 through 36, and you can follow along with me. And we pick it up at this point where Paul is, um, he's on the western coast of the province of, of Asia. He uh, is in the town of Miletus. He had just met with the uh, elders from the church at Ephesus. Chapter 20 ends with that scene. And so we have this beginning to chapter 21. And when we had parted from them, that's from the elders of Ephesus at at Miletus. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt 
and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their head. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what, in what they have been told about you and that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for our time in the scripture today. And there is uh, so much here, so much you have for us. 
And I pray that you would speak to each one of us uh, and enable our ability to grab hold of at least one thing that you would want to impress upon our hearts and bring to our lives this morning. I pray you would uh, enable our hearing and even enliven our desires to want to hear the word of God and become doers of it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. There's a lot to cover. You guys want the long version? I've got two versions here. You want the long version this morning or the short version? Okay. It's such a loaded question, right? Because you're not free to say the short version. It's like you're expected to say the long version, and we do have a lot to cover. But I trust, I will promise you, I have done my best to trim as much of the fat as possible uh, so that we aren't here for many hours. (laughs) Chapter 21 begins with another entry in what you might call Paul's travel log. Sailing from Miletus, after meeting with the elders at the church uh, at Ephesus one last time, Paul and his team jumped uh, from the islands of Kos and Rhodes to the port of Patara. Uh, in Patara, they likely boarded a larger vessel, so it's, it's, it's very likely that and they made those first jumps from Kos to Rhodes to Patara. They were probably in what was called like a coastal vessel, that kind of hugged the coast. It wasn't really prepared for the open waters. But once they got to Patara, they likely boarded a larger vessel that was better equipped to make the 400-mile journey across the Mediterranean. On their way to Phoenicia, they passed the island of Cyprus before coming to the city of Tyre where the ship was to unload her cargo. And so you may recall, this is where this Paul's third journey began, over here in Antioch. And this is the route all the way through here, up to Troas, over to Macedonia, down to Achaia, back up through Macedonia and Troas, met with the, uh, the Ephesian leaders here at, where is it, here at Miletus, and that's where we are. So from this point on today, they jumped from Kos to Rhodes to Patara, and then all the way down here to Tyre. And then they'll make a couple of stops to Ptolemaeus and Caesarea and ultimately to Jerusalem. And while in Tyre, thanks Bill, uh, the team connected with other believers from that region and they spent a week with them. And during that time, the Christians in Tyre, notice, they were warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, they had received some sort of revelation from the Spirit of God. And according to verse 4, it was through the Spirit that they began to tell Paul, don't go. Nothing changed, though. By week's end, Paul and the others continued on their journey, keeping to their itinerary, and the disciples entire, along with their families, accompanied the team to the ship, prayed with them, and bid them farewell. The boat made quick stops down the Phoenician shore from Tyre to Ptolemaeus and finally to Caesarea in the area of of Syria. And in Caesarea, they found Philip, and they went into Philip's house. Now, you may remember Philip from chapter 6. 
Philip was one of the seven men who were chosen by the congregation at Jerusalem to care for the widows and the daily distribution of the widows. He was a reputable man. He was known for being a spirit-filled man, a man who, who uh, consistently followed the guidance of the Spirit of God. Uh, we saw that again in chapter 8 when he was with the Ethiopian eunuch and led him to Christ. Uh, and so by this time in chapter 21, now nearly 30 years had passed. By this time in chapter 21, he and his wife had had four daughters who shared their father's faith and were known for their gift of prophecy. Uh, they were known for bringing the word of God to the people of God with regularity. Well, after many days in Philip's home, another prophet entered the picture, a man named Agabus who had come down from the region of Judea. Now, when he saw the Apostle Paul, he took Paul's belt and, and with Paul's belt, he bound his own hands and feet. He was basically reenacting the prophetic word that he had received from God. Even as we see, if you know some of your Old Testament prophets, it's not uncommon for the prophets to reenact what God was saying. So he's providing this visual aid to everyone, and he says to them, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Whoever's belt this is, this is what will become of him when he gets to Jerusalem. He will be bound and delivered to the Gentiles. So there was no mistaking the meaning of this And when everyone heard it, and when everyone saw it portrayed in this way, they all pleaded with Paul to cancel his plans. Not only only the people of Caesarea, but even now members of his own team, those who'd been traveling with him all along the way, even they now joined in and began to urge him to avoid Jerusalem. But Paul's face was fixed. And he says to them, what are you doing? I don't know how he said it, but that's how I imagine it. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Listen, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to suffer imprisonment. And I'm ready to die if that's what it takes for the name of Jesus. Now this is the only statement Luke records that Luke records Paul making in this entire chapter until after he's beaten and arrested near the end of the chapter, which we'll see next week. 
And in this statement, I think we see how Paul, how deeply the others loved Paul and how deeply he loved them because they were crying for him. They were pleading with him to not go through tears. And their tears were breaking Paul's heart. Their tears were ripping him up inside. We also see Paul's resolve when he said that he's ready to face whatever awaits him. And then we see what drove his resolve, specifically his passion for the name of Jesus. Now we've been following Paul's story for many chapters now. And what has become clear to us is that Paul never sought to make a name for himself, but rather to declare and exalt the name of Christ. But that wasn't always the case. There was a time in Paul's life when he lived for the fame of his own name. In fact, even when he looked back on those earlier pre-conversion days, he talked about how easily he could tout himself and his many accomplishments. In Philippians chapter 3, for instance, he wrote, Listen, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I I was... circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the epitome. I was the pinnacle. I was the model. I was the example. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept it perfectly. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, as a Jewish man in that culture, he had everything going for him, humanly speaking. He wasn't just climbing the ladder. Paul was at the top rung. And then he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he began to see the world through a totally different lens. Everything was much clearer to him now, and what was once perceived to be so important to him paled in comparison to the life he had received from Christ. Whatever gain I had, he testified, whatever gain it was, I now count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Then he says, indeed, Hear me, I count everything as loss when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That doesn't mean that nothing else matters, but it does mean that nothing in life matters more than knowing the Son of God and the Savior of the world in a personal way. Nothing in your life today matters more than knowing the Son of God and Savior of the world in a personal way. 
So if, it's, if the choice is to follow the way of the world or the way of Christ, it's the way of Christ every time. Paul had come to a place in life at which we must all arrive, that place where we value life in Christ more than a life spent in temporal, self-centered pursuits. And so when the other believers in Caesarea saw his resolve, when they realized and knew that they, that they would not be able to change his mind, that he would not be persuaded. They just stopped trying and they said simply, let the will of the Lord be done, which is what you say when you have nothing else to say. And within a matter of days, the team departed for Jerusalem This time they're joined by some from Caesarea. In Jerusalem, they found Nason, a man who had come to faith in Christ early on. Nason opened his home to them, and there they stayed. But before we go on to Jerusalem, I want to just pause for a moment and try to just ruminate a bit on this scene. What are we to make of this interaction between Paul and those in Tyre and Caesarea. In other words, were the, were the disciples in Tyre out of line for begging Paul not to go? Did they overstep their bounds? Did the prophet Agabus overstep his bounds along with the others in Caesarea who urged Paul to not continue on his journey? In both cases, notice, in both cases we're told that it was the Spirit of God who revealed these things to these Christian brothers and sisters. So was Paul just being stubborn here, refusing not only their counsel, but in effect refusing the direction of the Lord? Basically, were the people wrong in trying to stop Paul, or was Paul wrong in pressing on against their counsel? And I believe, in this case, neither of them are wrong. That neither Paul nor the people were wrong. Instead, all involved were responding to the respective information they had been given. Through through the Holy Spirit or though the Holy Spirit had revealed to the others that Paul would suffer, if he went on to Jerusalem, nowhere does it say that the Spirit didn't want him to go. Instead, it seems that they didn't want him to go because they cared about him. They loved him. They were concerned for his safety as any friend would be. 
What they didn't realize, though, was that the Spirit had already revealed to Paul what he was to do. Remember, back in chapter 19, Paul had already resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. Paul had heard from God, and and he had resolved to obey God, even if it meant hardship for him, which he again told the Ephesian elders in chapter 20. So the people weren't wrong for trying to dissuade Paul because they didn't know the whole story, nor was Paul wrong for not heeding their counsel. All parties involved were operating under the information they had been given. And I believe there's a lesson for us in this. Particularly if we put ourselves in the shoes of of those who were convinced that Paul shouldn't go. I think the lesson is this, that things aren't always as they seem. Just because you know something of what the Spirit has revealed doesn't mean that you know everything. You get me? Which means, implied in this statement, which means that other Christians in whom God's Spirit is also working may have more information about a given situation and and therefore do what you wouldn't do. Or have a conviction that's different than yours. It doesn't mean that you're wrong. Doesn't mean that they're wrong. It means that that they have received more of the picture than you. And if only for this reason, each of us then, how should we respond? In humility, right? Right? Humility before God, humility before one another, just as the people in this passage did when it became clear that Paul wasn't budging. I just want you to notice, I love this. Notice how they continued to support him while expressing their trust in God. Notice how they did not abandon Paul even though they disagreed with him. They didn't want him to go. He said, I'm going, and they said, okay. We're with you. The Lord's will be done. And they, 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 they cared for him. They stuck by him. They walk with him. They pray with him. And ultimately, they entrust him to God's will. I just love it. I think it's a beautiful, wonderful, real-life example of true Christian community that should characterize our lives and our churches as we face the many situations we do. Humility. Togetherness. Entrusting each other to the will of the Lord. We find another example of this as Paul arrives in Jerusalem finally. And he's gladly received by the church there. And James, the apostle, along with the church elders, they met with Paul and they just began swapping stories. And, 
and, and they notice just how widespread the effect of the gospel has been. Paul recounts one by one, it says, one by one, he just recounts the many things that God had done along his, uh, in his ministry uh, among the Gentiles, while James and the others say, basically they say, hey, man, that is so great. That's so wonderful that God has been doing all those things out there among the Gentile peoples. And we just want you to know, Paul, that God has been doing amazing things here in Jerusalem because now when you left, there, there were probably just hundreds maybe of Jews who had come to Christ. Well, Paul, now there are thousands. There are thousands of Jewish uh, believers who have come to faith in Christ. And so as they're sharing these stories, they all glory in God together, just how God has brought salvation both to Jews and to Gentiles in places near and far. But there was one problem. Some of the Jews in Jerusalem who had become Christians heard a rumor that Paul was telling Jews who lived in Gentile regions that they no longer needed to follow Jewish law. They don't need to practice circumcision, for example. They don't need to follow Jewish customs. And this upset the Jerusalem Jews, because even though they now believed in Christ, they still valued their traditional Jewish culture. the traditional Jewish practice as outlined in the Torah. And you can imagine the threat this issue posed to the stability and unity of the church there in Jerusalem. Which explains, I think, why James and the others had already been thinking about how to defuse the situation. Their plan, which we read in verses 23 and 24, their plan was to have Paul take a vow of purification along with four others who were already under a, uh, one such vow uh, because if Paul would participate in the vow with them, it would show that he still observed Jewish law. And thus it would debunk the rumors and would help alleviate the concerns of those who thought he'd abandoned the law. I think basically their plan was this. Hey, Paul, just show them your Jewishness. Just let them see your Jewishness. Let them see your observance of the law. And everything will be okay. And Paul agreed. The next day, he took the vow himself in the temple, and he even paid the temple expenses for the four others. But to feel the full weight of this, the full weight of what's going here on here, we just have to remember that Paul was under no obligation to do this. He did not have to do this. There was, there was no ob obligation to observe traditional Jewish law because Paul had come to a place where, where he knew that confidence before God was no longer in keeping the law, but in trusting Christ who fulfills the law perfectly. But because he understood culture, and he understood cultural sensitivities, 
And because of the context in Jerusalem at that time and, and, and his need and, and, and practice to contextualize on occasion, he voluntarily chose what was best for others even though it required more from him. Even though it required more from him, he was willing to be all things to all people if it meant saving some. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he said, To the Jews... I became a Jew so as to win the Jews. To those under the law, he said, I became as one under the law even though I'm not under the law. To win those who are under the law. For Paul, this was about winning people to Christ. How do you define the win? I think we sometimes lose sight of the win or we misidentify the win. Just think for a moment about Culture and cultural sensitivities, even here in America. Think about the many different nationalities represented in our country. Think about the many differences politically represented in our country. Think about the many subcultures that are present in nearly every community in our country. Think about the importance of context and the need to contextualize the Christian message. Listen, the win is never in getting your way or proving your point. That's not the win. The win is in winning people to Christ. Which means listening, it means reasoning, it means persuading, it means becoming this all things to all people, it means serving in this way, and most importantly, it means trusting in the Spirit of God to do through you what you can probably not even imagine what he would do. Paul made concessions. Paul made concessions when it meant open doors for ministry. He voluntarily surrendered his rights if it meant winning the right thing. In this case, the win was avoiding division in the church because as far as he was concerned, if agreeing to a show of purification would diffuse the tension and dispel the rumors and therefore keep an outward focus on bringing the gospel to more unsaved people rather than Christians infighting amongst themselves, he was more than happy to concede his rights. 
But we come to verse 27. And yet another difficult situation presents itself. He'd already dealt with his friends and fellow believers who tried to dissuade him. And then he dealt with the false reports, the rumors against him. And now while he's in the Jewish temple, completing his vow of purification, which he never had to do. He didn't have to do this, but there he is. He's completing his vow of purification when some other Jews from a different region begin leading a charge against him. We've already seen these particular Jews back in chapter 19 when Paul was in the city of Ephesus. In chapter uh, uh, verse 9 of that chapter, they were described as, as stubborn and unbelieving, and they spoke evil of Christianity and evil of the way of Christ. And so these were non-Christian Jews. These were non-believing Jews. These were Jews uh, of the diaspora who no longer lived in Judea, but had returned to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And when they saw Paul, when they saw him again, immediately they recognized him and they pounced. And they accused Paul of speaking against the Jewish people, speaking against the Jewish uh, law, and speaking against the Jewish temple. And they said that Paul had in fact defiled the temple by bringing a non-Jew <clears throat> excuse me, into the holy place. None of this was true, of course. But they already had it out for Paul, and because they had seen Paul in the city with uh, an Ephesian named Trophimus, they assumed that Paul must have brought Trophimus into the temple as well. And because doing so would have been an obvious violation of temple law, the crowd now stirred into a frenzy, rushed at Paul and seized him and, began, uh, and they dragged him out of the temple. And Luke tells us that they immediately shut the temple gates behind him. I think that's because uh, at that point there was no place for Paul to run. He couldn't run back inside the temple to seek sanctuary. So they shut the gates behind him and they began beating him mercilessly. And we're told that they intended to kill him. They weren't going to stop until he was, until he was no more. A word came to the Roman commander who was stationed there in Jerusalem, uh, the tribune, the commander, and he had a cohort of a thousand troops and he hears about this uproar, and he takes off. And the people see the Romans coming, and so they back off. And the commander seizes Paul, or has Paul seized, and they have him chained with two chains, we're told. So likely there was a soldier chained to Paul's left hand and a soldier chained to Paul's right hand. And the commander begins saying, what's going on? Who is this guy and what's he doing? What's all this uproar about? No one can give him a clear answer, a straight answer. And so he decides, i got to take him back to the barracks for questioning. So he orders Paul back to the barracks. And, while, and the crowd is in such a frenzy that the soldiers after actually have to like carry Paul to the barracks while the crowd in just like this mob-like fashion 
is just shouting away with him. Away with him. Away with him. Not unlike those days also in Jerusalem when Jesus was captured by Roman authorities and the Jewish crowd was shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so that which the Spirit had said that Paul would suffer and be imprisoned had indeed come to pass. And as I said earlier, from this point on, Paul is a prisoner. So I want to take just a few quick moments to take a a step back and from a bird's eye view of this passage, try to consider what do we make of this outcome. And I think we have three, at least three, very brief takeaways. The first and and obvious one is that following Jesus will be hard at times. I mean, there's just no way around it. You know, life itself is hard sometimes. And the Christian life can be even harder Jesus warned us of this when he said that, listen, listen, he said, just as people opposed me, they will also oppose you. I think this is why throughout the New Testament Gospels, I think this is why Jesus repeatedly talks about the cost of discipleship, why he talks about the need to take up your cross, uh, why he talks about sharing in his sufferings, He did this to prepare us for those times when your faith in Christ will put you at odds with the world because the world does not share your faith. Nor does it share, in many cases, your values. So Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Not not may, Not possibly, not maybe. You will have tribulation. And then he says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Which leads us to the second part, that that God's good purposes are never derailed by evil intent. When you step back to see things on the macro level, God wins all the time. And because God wins, we win. Those of us who have been uh, redeemed by Christ and restored to God, those who live now as daughters and sons of the Lord... But as with any victory, just think about it, as with any victory, a victory 
on the sports, in the sports arena, a victory of a military campaign, maybe even your own personal battles with sin and temptation, just as with any victory, there are challenges along the way, aren't there, that sometimes feel like losses. And maybe they are losses in their own right. But remember, although you may lose a battle here and there, the war is already won. The hand of providence is not held back by evil intent or even the schemes of Satan himself. After all, it certainly seemed like evil won when Jesus was crucified. But in fact, that was the event. His death and crucifixion was the event. Uh, It was the uh, divinely ordained path to ultimate triumph. Even in this scene, what seems like Paul's loss, in fact, became his gain because this is the event that eventually got him to Rome and consequently took the gospel of Jesus Christ to the epicenter of human civilization at that time. You can just see, if you step back, you can see the hand of God at work in all of this. And so, number three, number three, the safest place to be is to be in the will of the Lord. Uh, Remaining back in Tyre, had had Paul remained back in Tyre, persuaded by uh, by the believers there, he may have been safe physically, but he would have been out of God's will. That's not a safe place. Had he remained in Caesarea at the urging of his friends there, he may have been safe physically, but he would have been out of God's will. That's not safe. The safest place to be is to be in the will of God. Remember the the children, remember when the children entered Narnia and they began to hear about Aslan? Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I'd thought he was a man. Well then, is he Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Haven't you been listening to what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king. And I think that message 
is as important for us today in the real world as it was for those children who ventured through Narnia. We need to know and remember often that Jesus is the King, the Lord. Yes, the enemy is real, but Jesus reigns. Jesus is greater. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is victor. Following Jesus does not guarantee a safe and easy life because He is not tame. He is not a domesticated house cat. He is the King of Beasts, the Lion of Judah, and He is good. The safest place to be then is to be in the will of the Lord. Paul's passion is seen in his determination to press on even when dissuaded by good and godly friends. It's seen in his desire to be all things to all people for the sake of saving some. And it's seen in his willingness to suffer and even to die if necessary. And so, may we also learn to let the will of the Lord be done. Amen. Thank you for this time, Father. We, we trust that you've spoken to us, each one of us. We ask that you would impress your truth upon our hearts even now, throughout the day, tomorrow, throughout the week. Please give us the strength and courage necessary to follow Jesus through difficult times. Please help us to find comfort and and solace and even joy and purpose in being numbered as your own. Send us out from this place in a spirit that, in, in the spirit, in the spirit himself, send us out from this place even as you sent the Apostle Paul, that we might bring the message of Jesus to those who need it. And may the name of the Lord be praised. Amen.